Greetings, everyone. My name is Douglas Winnale. I've held teaching positions at a number of colleges and universities in the United States over the last 30 to 40 years. And I'm currently a professor at Living University, where I teach classes in Old Testament survey and the history of the Israelite people. Living University is an Internet university sponsored by the Living Church of God. In the presentation that you're about to hear, I'm going to discuss a subject that I've been studying for over 40 years. It's a subject that has interested and fascinated millions of people for centuries in Europe, the Americas, and other parts of the world. The subject we're going to discuss in this presentation provides an important key for understanding the future of specific nations. And that's why I've entitled the presentation, The Forgotten Key to Bible Prophecy. And as you will see, that forgotten key is the identity of the Israelite nations, the so-called lost tribes of Israel. When we look at the importance of this subject from a biblical standpoint, we run into a number of scriptures. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 6, Jesus told his disciples this was their mission. This was their marching orders that he gave them. He said, I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the house of Israel had to do with the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus told his disciples, I want you to go. You know, preaching the gospel, warning them about what's coming down the road. In order to fulfill this mission that Jesus gave to his disciples, the disciples had to know who these Israelite people were and where they were. Now, when you follow the movements of the 12 apostles after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we read in the New Testament that Paul went through Asia Minor, modern Turkey. He went to Greece. He went to Rome. The Bible also indicates that he was planning to go to Spain. And historical sources say that Paul went to the British Isles even before he died. The Apostle Peter wrote his epistle from Babylon. Not Rome, but the, the city of Babylon. There are also historical sources say that Peter went to the British Isles at one point in time. The Apostle Thomas went to northwestern India in that area because there were Israelites there. The Apostle Andrew went up into southern Russia, Scythia, because there were Israelites there. So when you follow the movements of the 12 apostles, they did go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They knew where to go and they knew who these people were. In Matthew 24, Jesus told his disciples and for us today, he said, I want you to watch and warn about end time events that are going to take place so that people are not caught by surprise. In Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel was one of the prophets that he had a message to the ancient Israelites, but he was appointed a watchman to Israel. Now, what's interesting is, in the case of Ezekiel, he was writing about uh, 550 B.C., but the Israelite nation, the nation of Israel, had already gone into captivity to Assyria about 120 years before, which means the message to Ezekiel to be delivered to Israelites really applies to today not just to ancient Israel. And Ezekiel talks about disasters that were going to come on the Israelite people because of their disobedience, anciently and also in the future. You know, many biblical scholars understand that many prophecies in the Bible are dual. There was an ancient fulfillment to the prophecies initially, but the ultimate fulfillment is going to be in the future, just before the return of Jesus Christ. And that message needs to be delivered by the disciples of Jesus Christ. This concept of duality in the Bible is an important subject. It applies to prophecies as well as situations. You know, God sent prophets to ancient Israel to warn the Israelites about what was going to happen in their immediate future. He wanted to warn the Israelites so that they would understand why the punishments were going to come on them because they had disobeyed God, turned away from his laws and principles. However, we find in the New Testament, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, 
where Jesus said to watch world events. God is going to be warning the modern nations of Israel just like he warned the ancient nations of Israel about what is going to come in the future and why these things are going to come. You know, it's inconceivable that a God who is a God of love would warn ancient Israel about what was coming and he wouldn't warn the world and the modern Israelite nations today of what is going to come just before the return of Jesus Christ. That doesn't make sense. In fact, there's a very interesting scripture in Amos chapter 3 and verse 7 where it says that God will do nothing unless he reveals his secrets, his plan, his purpose to his servants, the prophets, so that they can then warn the rest of the world and especially the Israelite nations. But I'd like to ask another question. Does the Bible provide clues about the identity of the Israelite nations? Are there scriptures in the Bible that we can look at? that will help us understand how to identify the Israelite nations today? Well, the answer is yes. The book of Genesis contains a series of prophetic promises that help us identify the modern Israelite nations today. And we're going to look at some of those. The prophecies that we find in the book of Genesis develop, they grow as you move through the book of Genesis. And we'll be looking for nations then that will fulfill these prophetic promises. In Genesis chapter 12, God began working with a man named Abram or Abraham. And he said to Abraham, if you follow my instructions, if you leave your country and you follow and you go where I want you to go, you will become and your descendants will become a great nation and they will be a blessing to the nations of the world. A specific promise. In Genesis 17, Abraham was told, because of his obedience, your descendants will become many nations. You'll become the father of many nations. Many nations will come out of your seed. In Genesis 22 and Genesis 24, the promise was expanded to include possessing the gates of their enemies. At the point in time in history, your descendants will gain possession of the gates, strategic points around the world that once belonged to their enemies, it will become your possessions. In Genesis 27, he said, Your descendants, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, will inherit the choice places of the earth, the choice places of the earth, and other nations will serve you. In Genesis 28, he said, The descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will spread abroad. They're going to spread the whole way around the world. They're going to become a colonizing people. And they will be a blessing to other nations. These are things that we need to look for as we look at the record of history. In Genesis 32, verse 28, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So the names of the descendants of Jacob, the names of the tribes, would be Israelites. In Genesis 35, another specific development in these promises, where God said the descendants of Jacob will become a nation and a company of nations. A nation and a company of nations. In Genesis 48, whenever Jacob blessed his grandsons, he said, my name is going to be upon you. They're going to be Israelites. And he said, the descendants of Manasseh will become a great nation. In other words, the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And the descendants of Ephraim will become a company of nations or a commonwealth of nations. These are very specific prophecies, specifically to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then to Joseph's sons. In Genesis 49, we read a series of uh, prophecies about the traits of each particular tribe, Reuben, Gad, uh, other tribes. But it says these will be the characteristics that you will recognize in the latter days. In other words, at the end of the age, just before Jesus Christ returns, you should be able to look back over the history of various nations and their, their history is going to reflect the very characteristics that are mentioned in Genesis 49, which tells us these Israelite tribes are going to be around at the end of the age so that their characteristics can be recognized. These are biblical keys for understanding how to identify the Israelite nations. The question then becomes, who 
has fulfilled the promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the sons of Joseph. What nations have actually fulfilled these prophecies? Those promises, again, including, included becoming a colonizing people, spreading abroad around the world, becoming a nation and a company of nations, in other words, the single greatest nation on the face of the earth, and then a great company of nations who has possessed or came into the possession of the gates of their enemies at a specific point in time, choke points, key points around the world geographically that have controlled trade and the movements of peoples. And what descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob became a blessing to the peoples of the world. You have to ask these questions. The promises and the prophecies are there, and someone has fulfilled those. We have published numerous materials over the years identifying the United States and Great Britain and the peoples of northwestern European descent as being Israelite peoples. This concept is referred to as Anglo-Israelism. In other words, the people of America, Britain, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand are basically descendants of the Israelite peoples, also peoples of northwestern Europe. We've published, we have currently a booklet published on this. We've published numerous booklets about the subject, uh, the Bible Correspondence Course, the Tomorrow's World Bible Study Course, Lesson 4, deals with this master key to Bible prophecy. And really, the understanding of the Israelite nations is a key to understanding Bible prophecy. If you don't understand this concept, Bible prophecy is not going to make sense. And again, there are many other books on the market and have been on the market for centuries talking about this particular subject. When you look at the people who have promoted this idea, it's a very interesting study. A man by the name of Gildas wrote about 500 A.D., And he was an educated person. He was writing about the history of what was happening in England around 500 A.D. It's one of the few sources that come down to us from that period of time. He said the invasions of the Saxons coming into England at that time was God's punishment on his Israelites. The Saxon invasions of England about 500 A.D., Gildas says, was God's punishment on his Israelites. He understood this concept of the people in Britain being Israelites. About 900 A.D., Alfred the Great, one of the kings of England, makes a statement in his writings that our ancestors, he says, were once slaves in Egypt. He's talking about the Israelites being in Egypt and coming out of Egypt. But here, 900 A.D., this concept was there of Britain being Israelites. About 1100 A.D., Moses Maimonides, He was a very famous and influential Jewish philosopher. He was born in Spain, uh, lived in uh, North Africa, and then died in Egypt. A very educated person. He says, I believe the ten tribes to be in various parts of Europe. 1100 A.D., a Jewish philosopher, a very educated person, said, I believe the ten tribes to be in various parts of Europe. So the idea was alive. Some other ones. 1649, about 30 years after the pilgrims landed in uh, Plymouth Rock in the United States, a man by the name of John Sadler wrote a book, Rights of the Kingdom, in which he wrote that the British were Israelites. They traced their ancestry to the tribes of Israel. A man by the name of Dr. Joseph Abadi, he was born in France in the 1700s, one of the, one of the more educated individuals of his age. Uh, He started um, French-speaking churches in in Berlin, also uh, French-speaking churches in London and Ireland. But he makes a very interesting statement. He said, unless they, the lost ten tribes, have disappeared into thin air, the ten tribes are in northwest Europe and in the British Isles. Dr. Abadi, very educated person, understood this concept and wrote about it. During the 16 to 1800s, the Puritans in England and also in America promoted this idea that the British and the Americans were Israelites. Roger Williams, the individual who founded the colony that became Rhode Island in America. Cotton Mather, a very prominent Puritan preacher, 
in New England. Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s was considered one of the most educated people in the United States um, in, in, in North America at that time. Believed and promoted the idea. Ezra Stiles, a name you might not recognize, but he was one of the presidents of Yale College, which became Yale University, wrote a book about the subject that America and Britain were Israelites. Another gentleman, Dr. Moses Margolioth, he was a Jew that converted to Christianity, held two doctor's degrees, became a vicar, a minister, a preacher, a theologian in the Church of England, wrote a book entitled The History of the Jews in Great Britain, in which he said the British are basically descendants of the children of Israel. In the 1800s and early 1900s, millions of people were aware of this idea of Anglo-Israelism, that America and Britain were Israelite peoples. Winston Churchill understood the concept. Herbert Armstrong came across the subject whenever he read a book by a man by the name of J.H. Allen, written in 1917, entitled Judah's Scepter and Israel's Birthright, where he was talking about America and Britain are the descendants of Israelites. That book went through 17 editions. And this is why millions of people understood this concept in the 1800s and early 1900s. What I'd like to do next then in this presentation is ask the question, is there any evidence that supports this idea from history, uh, from scripture, from archaeology, from genetics? Because critics like to say there's no evidence. There's no evidence in the Bible. There's no evidence in history. There's no evidence of science. Uh, this is just a crazy idea. Yet I would encourage you to check the scripture that we have here on First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21, where the apostle Paul was telling the church in Thessalonica, he says, prove all things, examine everything. Don't just buy into it because somebody says it. He said, prove it, examine it, and then hold on to what is true. You know, nail down what the truth is. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. I'm going to give you some suggestions and guidelines here in this presentation. That there is evidence that is not mentioned by the critics today. There's evidence that's ignored by critics today. But let's look at some of that evidence. First of all, in Scripture, there are a number of very specific prophecies about the tribe of Dan. This is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. In Genesis 49, verse 17, it says, Dan is going to be like a serpent by the way. One of the characteristics of the tribe of Dan is that he's going to leave a trail. If you've ever watched nature films and watched the sidewinder rattlesnake crawling over the sand, you can tell where he's been, you can tell where he's going, because he's going to leave a trail. And one of the prophecies about the tribe of Dan is that they're going to be like a serpent by the way. They're going to leave a trail. That trail is going to involve names. In the book of Joshua, chapter 19, verse 27, it says the Danites, whenever they would conquer a city, they would rename the city Dan in honor of their forefather. So if we look at place names, we should be able to find a trail of where these Danites have been by leaving a trail of place names. In Judges, chapter 5, verse 17, Another prophecy, and this was during the time the Israelites were coming into the promised land. Uh, many of the Israelite tribes were fighting to uh, conquer the land, but it says that Dan remained in ships. In other words, they were a maritime people. They were sailors. They weren't fighting to conquer the land. They were doing other things. They were involved in commerce and exploring and moving around the Mediterranean world and other places. Okay, When it comes to place names, when you look at a map of Europe, uh, you'll find a number of names that are related to Dan, which we would expect to find if they were going to leave a trail and they were involved in maritime trade. You find the names of rivers and the names of places reflect this name of Dan, the Danube, which comes out of the Black Sea, runs up into the central part of Europe, the Don, the Udon, the Dniester, the Dnieper, the Eridanus, which was an older name for the Po River, the Anodanus is another name for the Rhone River that runs south through France and empties out into the Mediterranean. Place names such as the Dardanelles, 
Cyprus was once called Ladan, or the Isle of Dan, because it was involved in the trade routes. Sardinia, Macedonia, the plain of Adana, which was the name for Cilicia, uh, at the top of the Adriatic Sea. Denmark, or Dansmark, as it's mentioned on older maps. Sweden, Scandinavia, or Codanus Sea, which was the Baltic. Uh, They're just north of Germany. Cornwall was once referred to as Dan Monai, or Dan's Tin Mines. Now, these are some of the place names that we find when we look at maps. Now, critics will look at the same uh, information and say, oh, you're just playing word games. You know, you're just playing with names. It really doesn't mean anything. But that overlooks a whole science called toponymy. Toponymy, which is a science in the study of place names. When you look this up on Google and other sources of information, toponymy is defined as the most useful, one of the most useful geographical reference systems in the world because it tells you things. It provides valuable insight into historical geography of a particular region. You know, the names are there for reasons. And you can identify migration patterns and settlement patterns with place names. You know, my family and I lived uh, in New England, about 15 miles in from Plymouth Rock uh, in Massachusetts. We lived there for about 10 years. Whenever you look at place names, Plymouth, Bridgewater, the town that we lived in, just south of Boston, uh, one of the suburbs of Boston is Braintree. Just below us was Bristol in Rhode Island. These place names all can be found on maps of southern England, especially southwestern England. That's where the people came from that migrated to New England. That's why they call New England New England, because the people and the place names came from England. So the study of place names or toponymy is a key to understanding where people have come from and where they've gone, because they've taken their culture and the place names with them. Just like the Danites, they left their name on rivers. They left their name on geographical places, just like the Bible said that they would. But there are other links, biblical links, that connect the Israelites with the Phoenicians. Now, the Phoenicians were the navigators of the ancient world. They circumnavigated Africa about 600 B.C. And there's implications they may have gone other places. But very definite links between the Israelites and the Phoenicians. Where the Phoenicians went, <clears throat> the Israelites apparently went too because they were sailors. In 1 Kings 5, verses 1 through 18, it mentions that Hiram, the king of Tyre, was a friend of David's and he supplied materials to Solomon's temple, you know, the cedars of Lebanon. In 1 Kings 10, verses 22 to 23, it mentions Solomon's fleet. His sailors sailed with Hiram's fleet. They sailed with the Phoenicians on three-year voyages. Now, this was about 1,000 B.C. You know, how long did it take Magellan to sail around the world? It took about three years. And where did these people go? Some very interesting information along those lines that we don't have time to go into today. But they came back with gold and silver and ivory and apes and monkeys. Where does ivory come from? Africa, India. Where do apes come from? Similar places. Gold and silver appears to have come from Western Europe, from Spain, and also up into England and Ireland. When you look at the trade routes in the ancient world, Tyre was a Phoenician city. It was kind of their headquarters of their maritime empire. They sailed through the Mediterranean, established Carthage, and established Cadiz in Spain. Then they sailed up and down the western coasts of Europe and also Africa. One of the reasons that they sailed up to England and Ireland is that these were major sources of tin and copper in the ancient world. And you need tin and copper to make bronze. And bronze, by selling it, you made money. So the Phoenicians were involved in this metal trade, and it appears the Israelites sailed with the Phoenicians to these areas. Historical sources indicate that some of the earliest people into Ireland were the Tuatha de Danann. Tuath means a tribe, De is of. Danann is obviously something related to the people of Dan. Now critics say, that well, these were the people of the goddess Dana. Well, the Bible indicates that the Danites were very much into pagan idolatry. 
So it's not surprising that they would have their pagan gods. But what is interesting is the Irish legends say that some of the earliest people into Ireland were the Tuatha de Danann, and they settled there about 1400 B.C., which is about the time of the Exodus when the Israelites were leaving Egypt. So historical sources point to a connection between the Israelites, the Israelite tribes, and Ireland. Other historical sources say the same thing. The book of Ezra is one of the apocryphal books that you find that is included, I think, in Catholic Bibles. But it was written about 20 B.C., so the estimates say. But here's a historical source that's, that describes what happened to the Israelites after they were carried captive to Assyria. Whenever the Assyrian Empire fell, it said the ten tribes which were carried away prisoners out of their own land, they took counsel among themselves that they would leave the multitude of the heathen. They would get out of there, get away from the Assyrians. And they entered into the Euphrates by the narrow passages of the river. Now, the narrow passages are not down around Babylon. Those narrow passages are going to be north to the Caucasus Mountains, uh, the gorges up in that area. So what this author is saying is the Israelites, when they were getting out of Assyria, they went north through the Caucasus Mountains into Crimea. They went up around the Black Sea, and from there they migrated into Europe. That's what we're being told by the historical passage. It appears that the migration routes of the Israelites followed two major routes. One was through the Mediterranean with the Phoenician trade routes through the Straits of Gibraltar, then up the west coast of uh, Europe to England and Ireland. Another route was north out of uh, Assyria, up through Armenia, through the Caucasus Mountains, through a pass called the Dariel Pass. Uh, this pass was one of the major routes through the Caucasus Mountains. Darius went through that uh, area with a number of military expeditions. But locally, it's also called the Pass of the Israelites because it appears the Israelites went through that pass and around the Black Sea, spent some time in Crimea and modern-day Ukraine, and then migrated up these rivers of Europe, the Dniester, the Vistula, the, Nad the Danube, which runs almost the whole way up to Switzerland. It's like a major highway through Europe. And then from uh, the coast of the Baltic and Denmark, the... Um, migrated into, actually invaded uh, England from the Scandinavian areas. But these appear to be the two major migratory routes through the Mediterranean and up the river valleys of Europe and eventually winding up in England. Archaeology also has some very interesting uh, supportive information about the movements of these Israelite peoples. In northwestern Iran is a rock face on a mountain called the Behistun Rock, and there are carvings put there by Darius about five or 600 B.C. He actually wrote in three different languages, just like the Rosetta Stone in Egypt. Uh, it was a key to understanding the Egyptian hieroglyphics. The uh, Behistun Rock carvings actually provided a key for understanding the cuneiform form of writing, these little wedges that were pressed into clay. Um, they were translated in the 1800s, 17 to 1800s. As you can see the rock face here in the picture, you see some figures at the top and then a lot of text. Whenever we look closely at those carvings at the top, we see Darius with his foot on a conquered person. Uh, the princes that he had conquered are, are roped together with a rope. But you see a fellow at the end with this long pointed hat. He's called a Sakan prince, S-A-K-A, a, -A, a Saka person. As we will see, Saka appears to be Saxons or Isaac's sons. It's a reference to these people. But this is a rock carving found uh, in northwestern Iran on the Behistun rock. But what's interesting also is when you look at the text, these Behistun inscriptions provide a very important connection that help us identify the Israelite peoples. The Assyrians called the Israelites Qumri, Qumri. The Babylonians called the same people, the Israelites, Gimiri, Gimiri. Now, these two names apparently come from the King Omri of the northern ten tribes, the nation of Israel. He's mentioned in 1 Kings 16. 
Only four or five verses are mentioned there, but he was one of the more prominent kings of the nation of Israel. He actually was involved in building the capital of the northern ten tribes, which was Samaria. But the Assyrians and the Babylonians called the Israelites Qumri and Gemiri. On the Behistun rock, in the text that you find there, they refer to the Gemiri, the Israelites, as Saka, or the Saka people, the guy with the pointed hat. So he's an Israelite. Historians then later call the Saka people Scythians or Sumerians. Scythians or Sumerians. The point that I want to make as we look at these Behistun rock carvings is that the, the carvings show us a connection between people who we know were Israelites, the Qumri and the Gemiri. They're called Saka, and then historians later call the Saka people Scythians and Sumerians. All these names refer to Israelites. One of the reasons that the world has lost track of Israelites today is their name has changed a number of times over history. And we'll see that in a prophecy a little bit later in this presentation. What's interesting, too, today, you go to Wales and you buy postcards with this name, C-Y-M-R-U, and it's pronounced Qumri. Again, the Assyrians called the Israelites Qumri, and the Welsh called themselves, and they pronounced the term Qumri. How did the Welsh, with this Israelite name, uh, wind up in Wales unless they migrated out of ancient Assyria across Europe and wound up in Wales today. Another point of reference that supports this idea that the people of the British Isles um, are Israelites is the Declaration of Our Broth. This is the Scottish Declaration of Independence, written about 1320 A.D., in which the Scottish nobles were appealing to the Pope. You know, uh, Edward I of England is coming up here to beat up on us. He wants to join us to England. We don't want that to happen. So they appeal to the Pope in this uh, declaration of our broth. You can read the first paragraph here, and it gives you an insight as to where they believe their ancestors came from. Now, these were the educated people in Scotland at that time. Now, they're appealing to the Pope. They say, we know from the chronicles and the books of the ancient, we know from ancient writings, that the nation of the Scots, which passing from greater Scythia, this area in southern Russia, uh, where the apostle Andrew went, where the Israelites migrated to, uh, just north of the Black Sea, which passing from greater Scythia through the Mediterranean, this Mediterranean route and the Pillars of Hercules, the um, Strait of Gibraltar, and sojourning in Spain. They spent a little bit of time there. And coming thence, or coming to Scotland, uh, 1,200 years after the outgoing of the people of Israel. In other words, after the Exodus. Exodus was about 1400 B.C., so 1,200 years later, about 200 B.C., they began coming into Scotland. They acquired for themselves the possession in the west where they now hold. In other words, Scotland. So here in 1320 A.D., the Scots understood that their ancestors came from Scythia, and as we saw in the Behistun rock carvings, these were Saka people, Scythian people. They were Israelites. So here you have a very direct connection. Again, critics today say that, well, this is all legend. We don't know, you know, we don't know what the facts really are. The people that were writing this had an idea of where they came from. That's why they put it here. They were appealing to the Pope. They were trying to uh, have the strongest case that they could muster. And they were saying that we came from these areas. The history of Israel's migration has been addressed in numerous texts. One, the history of Anglo-Saxons by uh, Sharon Turner. It's a man, not a woman. And it was written in the late 1700s, a very in-depth uh, expose or story or accounting of the migration of the Israelite tribes from the Middle East across Europe up into Scandinavia and then down into England. These authors connect the Saxons with the Scythians. The story of Celto-Saxon Israel by Bennett is one of the more recent publications, but it's a good summary of the whole subject. Again, this concept of Saxons being the sons of Isaac, or Isaac's sons, is the connection. Another historical connection between people coming out of Europe and winding up in England is the story of the Sarmatians and how they came to England. 
The Romans defeated the Sarmatians. They were one of the tribes moving among the Scythian people. And when they defeated these cavalry fighters, they shipped about 5,000 mercenary fighters to Hadrian's Wall, basically North England, just south of Scotland. But these people brought with them folk tales that formed the basis of uh, the tales about knights about around a round table and pulling a sword out of a stone. And many people think these ideas came from England, but they actually came and were brought by people that had come out of the Middle East, were captured and defeated in Europe, and then moved to England by the Romans. These tales apparently originated in Armenia, where the Israelites migrated from, the area where they were carried captive. But here you have a very direct connection between people. You can see the lines here. Israelites that started out uh, in the Middle East were carried captive up to Assyria, then migrated around uh, the Black Sea into Central Europe, where they were defeated by the Romans. The Romans then shipped about 5,000 of these fighters, plus their families. And whenever they were done uh, with their service to the Romans, they stayed down and settled there, uh, just north of, uh, of Manchester in England. You can go there and see the remains of this today. These Sarmatians wore a little pointed cap. Here you see it uh, kind of bent over on this fellow. I came across this book from Scythia to Camelot written by Scott Littleton. He was actually a teacher at Occidental College a number of years ago. I went down and, le and lectured in his class, I believe, if he's the same person. And he was interested in this concept of where the Israelite peoples came from and how they were related to the Israelites. What may surprise some people is that there's actually genetic evidence being discussed today, being discovered today, that links the people of the British Isles to the Middle East and the Israelites. Brian Sykes, who's a human geneticist at Cambridge University, has written several books on the subject. This one entitled Saxons, Vikings, and Celts, The Genetic Basis of um, the British People. Published in 2006, and he's published several other books on the same subject. Before we go into this, I just want to remind you quickly of these migratory routes of the Israelites. Some migrated to the British Isles through the Mediterranean Sea, Spain, and the uh, Straits of Gibraltar. Others migrated up through the uh, Caucasus Mountains, this Darial Pass, the Pass of the Israelites, and then up the river valleys, of Europe and then eventually from the Baltic down into England. Notice what Sykes has found in his research. He was studying genetic mutations and he gives them names. Uh, Jasmine and Tara are two specific genetic changes that have occurred and you can trace where these things are found and among the peoples where they're found. He said these changes appear to have originated in the Middle East and they spread from the Middle East with the spread of farming. These mutations came to the British Isles by two routes, he says. One was an ocean route through the Mediterranean, stopping in Greece and Spain, and then eventually to the Isles in the West. And the peoples who carried these mutations are now found in northwestern Spain, in Ireland, which is in the western part of the Isles, in Wales, the western part of England, in western Scotland, and then up in the Hebrides. He said these people carried a certain mutation and they appeared to have come by an ocean route. Another mutation that you can trace came through the Middle East or from the Middle East through Central Europe and then up into Scandinavia and from there down to the Isles. And he said this was a land route. And the people that show these mutations today are found in central and southeastern England, not in the west, but in the southeastern part. They came up through the river valleys of Europe. This is what's interesting. He said, Irish and British myths agree with genetic evidence. Now, critics today say this is all just a bunch of legends and you can't trust anything. Here is a modern researcher saying that the Irish and British myths agree with the genetic evidence. The Irish Celts, people in Ireland, arrived from Spain by an ocean route. The Tuatha de Danann. People called the Milesians, about 1400 B.C. to 1000 B.C. The Celts in Western Britain, again, came from uh, by an ocean route from Spain. Uh, Brutus, after the fall of Troy. 
Then he also says Celts in central and southeastern England arrived from Europe. They came up the river valleys, uh, especially into the Baltic, and then from there, from Denmark, uh, down into England. And they came in with the Saxon invasions about 500 B.C., or 500 A.D., excuse me. But what this modern research is saying is that modern genetic evidence agrees with the ancient myths and legends that tell where the people in the Isles came from. I want to quote just a little bit from his book, Saxons, Vikings, and Celts. He says in page 130, deeply held origin myths, however richly embroidered, have a habit of being right. So you can't just discount legends that have been around for a long time. There's generally a kernel of truth in those legends. You can't just dismiss them. Now you can, but you're throwing away evidence. He said the Irish myths of the Milesians, these are people coming from uh, western Turkey where the city of Tyre was. Milesians were right in one respect. The genetic evidence shows that a large portion of Irish Celts did arrive from Iberia, that's Spain, at or about the same time farming reached the Isles. Page 281. Then to page 282, he said, The connection to Spain is also there in the myths of Brutus. He came uh, first to Greece and then to England by way of uh, the ocean. The connection to Spain is also there in the myth of Brutus, who came to the Isles from the Mediterranean and up the Atlantic coast to found New Troy, which was one of the early names of London, in the land of Albion. This is the land of England. Another very interesting bit of uh, genetic and biochemical evidence is this whole concept of lactose tolerance. You know, if you can drink milk and eat ice cream, you're considered lactose tolerant if you don't get a lot of gas and upset stomach. However, most people in the world are lactose intolerant. They don't like to drink milk. They don't like to eat ice cream. Maybe they do, but when they do, they tendedly get a lot of gas and indigestion. When you look at the areas of the world in green, this is where you find the most lactose tolerant people in the world. The areas on the map showing up in red and brown uh, and kind of a, a, a dark, real dark green uh, tend to be lactose intolerant peoples. The theory behind this study suggests that the mutation for lactose tolerant occurred in the Middle East or uh, Asia Minor about 4,000 years ago. Then it traveled up into Western Europe where you find some of the most lactose-tolerant people in the world today. How did lactose-tolerant people in America, where did they come from? Where did lactose-tolerant people in Australia come from? Basically, they came from England, the British Isles, northwestern Europe. You notice the little red spots in America, the little red spot in uh, Australia. Native Americans, American Indians, and African Americans are those red spots. They tend to be more lactose-intolerant. Australian Aborigines are lactose intolerant for the most part. But the lactose tolerant people came from England, Ireland, Northwestern Europe. Now you might ask about Russia and this section across the central part of Africa. You notice that the lactose tolerant people in Russia today are right next to the Black Sea. Now there are many traveling Danites, traders, and so on that were uh, interacting with people along the Black Sea coast. Also in Africa, you'll notice it abuts with the Red Sea, and there were Israelite traders moving up and down the Red Sea. So they probably introduced genetic material that then spread across, across these continents. But the point I want to make here is that there is genetic evidence. This lactose tolerance concept and phenomena fits with the a movement of the Israelite peoples around the world. What drove these people to spread around the world? You know, there's a prophecy in Genesis 28, verse 14, where God said to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he said, you will spread around the world, to the east, to the west, to the north, and the south. And this is exactly what has happened. But various things drove the dispersion of these Israelite peoples, the desire for religious freedom, 
the Irish potato famine in which millions of people left Ireland to get away from oppression and the, uh, the threat of starvation. We don't hear much about the Scottish land clearances, but when the English conquered the Scots, they decided to put sheep on the highlands instead of these fighting clans. They wanted to get rid of those people, get rid of a problem. But it was a factor that moved many people from Scotland to the New World, especially to North America. Population pressures. People, the population was growing in England at that time. Also economic opportunities. So there were a number of factors that drove the migration and dispersion of these Israelite peoples out of England, Ireland, Scotland, and Northwestern Europe. But it actually fulfilled an ancient prophecy where God said the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would spread abroad around the world. God said anciently, your descendants, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, will become a blessing to the nations of the world. Not perfect, but they would become a blessing. Some other interesting prophecies about Israel that actually support this idea that the people of America, Britain, Canada, South Africa, people of Northwestern European descent are actually Israelites. Notice these prophecies. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 64, Moses was telling the Israelites as before they went into the promised land, he said, you are going to be scattered over the earth as a result of your disobedience. As a result of disobeying God, you're going to be scattered by God over the earth. And we just saw that in the previous slides. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 26, again, Moses writing, he said, you are going to lose your identity. You want to go back and read Deuteronomy 32, verse 26. This is the reason the world has lost sight of the Israelite peoples today. We saw the names change several different times. Uh, the Israelites were given different names by different peoples. The Israelites have not only lost track of their own identity, you know, many of the people today in America, Britain, Ireland, don't realize they're Israelites. But they were told, in some cases a century or two ago, they knew, but they've forgotten. The world has also lost track of the 12, of the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's why they're called the Lost Tribes. Hosea, a prophecy written about 700 B.C., said that you're going to become wanderers among the nations. And we just saw the Israelites have wandered from the Middle East through Europe up into uh, uh, the British Isles and then around the world. They have wandered among the nations. Amos, another early prophecy, said that Israel was going to be sifted through the nations, yet the smallest grain would not fall to the ground. They're going to remain together as a people. They're going to be a recognizable entity, which they are today. Isaiah 14 says that Israel will be settled in their own land. Now we, these people have been settled in their own land today. And this is also dual in the coming kingdom of God. They're going to be settled in their own land. Isaiah 62 and verse 2 says Israel is going to be called by a new name. You know, Americans today are not called Israelites. They're called Americans. People in the British Isles are called British or Irish or Scottish. They're not called Israelites. So they have a new name today, but also in the coming kingdom of God. They're going to be given a new name, very possibly Israelites. So if we summarize, can you identify Israelite nations? Can you really find evidence? And the answer is, yes, you can. There is a considerable amount of evidence that exists that connects the ancient nation of Israel with modern nations in Western Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And yet this is seldom mentioned or even never mentioned today by critics. They just say there's no evidence. But the evidence is there for anyone that has the courage to look. Why is this information not taught today, especially about the identity of the Israelite nations? Again, the Bible provides some very interesting and provocative and informative answers. Several prophecies in Isaiah mention that Isaiah's prophets are blind. Their religious leaders are blind. They didn't understand who God was. They didn't understand the importance of obeying God's laws. They didn't understand the overall plan of God. Isaiah also says Israel's watchmen, the people that should be watching and warning, are blind. Now, when you understand these prophecies are dual, Isaiah was talking about conditions in ancient Israel. 
He's also talking about conditions that would prevail at the end of the age in Israelite nations. He said the prophets and the watchmen are blind. They don't understand the plan and purpose of God. They don't understand about Bible prophecy. I remember hearing a minister comment one time. He said, well, I don't preach much about prophecy because I don't understand it. He's a minister. But he doesn't understand Bible prophecy, so he doesn't preach about it. They talk about Jesus. They talk about love. They talk about grace. They talk about mercy. But they ignore about one-third of the Bible. Jesus mentioned in his day and time, Matthew 15, verse 14, he said, the blind are leading the blind. And he was talking about the Pharisees. He was talking about the religious leaders of his day. He said, the blind are leading the blind. And I came across a book written about the condition of religion, Christian religion in England several years ago. And the author of the book made the statement. He said, in England, the tragedy is that the faithful are being led by the faithless. What he was saying is the religious leaders, many of them in England, don't believe in God, a personal God. They don't believe that the Bible was inspired. The faithless are leading the people that want to have faith. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, the Apostle Paul makes an overall general statement. He says, Satan blinds the minds of people in the world today. Satan blinds the mind. He has a role. He does exist. He's a deceiver, and he's deceived the whole world. But Paul also gives a reason why God is allowing this, Romans chapters 9 through 11. He says, God has blinded the Israelites today so the Gentiles may be grafted into spiritual Israel. You can read that in Galatians chapter 6, where he says, people that God calls today, that calls into his church today, are given a spiritual understanding so they become spiritual Israelites. They're part of spiritual Israel. So God has a plan that he's working out on this earth that encompasses all mankind. A couple of other interesting scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth, and these were primarily Gentiles. He says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. In other words, people don't understand the plan of God that we're talking about. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery that the world does not understand. And that's pretty much the case today. Not that many people understand who the Israelite nations are. Not that many people understand the details of Bible prophecy. But this ties in with what the apostle, well, with what Jesus mentioned. This ties in with what Jesus mentioned in Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. And he's talking to his disciples. He said, it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You have been given an understanding of the plan of God. But to them, to the world outside, it has not been given. He said, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For they hear. Blessed are your eyes for they see and blessed are your ears for they hear. He's talking about people that have been called by God into the church so they can understand. God has placed some very important information in the Bible to help us understand the identity of the modern Israelite nations. It's there. But this information has been ignored or is ignored and rejected today by most scholars and by most religious leaders. But it's there. These prophecies reveal that there is danger ahead for the Israelite nations today. Again, when you understand that Old Testament prophecies are dual, there was a fulfillment in the ancient world, but the ultimate fulfillment is going to be in the years just ahead, the years before Jesus Christ returns. Moses stated in Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, that the Israelite peoples would become utterly corrupt in the latter days. At the end of the age, just before Jesus Christ returns, the Israelite peoples are going to be utterly corrupt. You look at what's happening today. In America and Britain, we're promoting homosexuality as normal. We're promoting same-sex marriages. And the Bible says very clearly that these behaviors are an abomination in God's sight. And when we promote these things as normal, we're really defying God. We're ignoring what he actually says. And there's going to be consequences. 
Remember Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel was commissioned to be a watchman to warn the house of Israel about what was coming. And yet the Israelites were already in captivity. Ezekiel was writing 120 years after the Israelites has gone into captivity, which tells us these prophecies are for the future, not just for ancient Israel. He talks about disaster after disaster is going to come and the Israelite nations are going to win the captivity, whether it's military, economic, we'll have to find out. Other scriptures indicate that the downfall of the Israelite nations is going to come suddenly, like a wall that begins to buckle, then all of a sudden just breaks. There are a number of scriptures in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea that indicate the downfall of the Israelite nations at the end of the age is going to come suddenly. could be a monetary collapse. It could be uh, some uh, uh, dramatic earthquake or something. But the indication is the downfall is going to come suddenly. In Jeremiah chapter 30, it talks about a time of Jacob's trouble is going to come at the end of the age. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the Israelite nations. And they're going to be in deep trouble at the end of the age, according to Bible prophecy. And part of our job today is to deliver that warning. One other thing to look at before we close is Israel's ultimate future. A number of prophecies indicate there's going to be a second exodus from a captivity in the future. And what's interesting to notice is where does this exodus come from? Where do these Israelites come from? For this second exodus is going to occur in the future. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 11 mentions a second exodus and people are going to return from the islands in the sea. The islands in the sea. This is a term that uh, was understood anciently to be the British Isles. England, Ireland, Scotland could also include New Zealand, Australia. But it says the second exodus at the end of the age, people are going to come from the islands in the sea. Isaiah 49 verse 12, they're going to come from the north and the west and the land of Sinem. You know, the captivities of Israel and the captivities of Judah were in Assyria and in Babylon. And these are to the east, way to the east of Jerusalem. But the second exodus is going to come from the north and the west. That would be coming from the direction of northwestern Europe and the Isles. Sinem. Some translations say this is Australia or a land in the south. Jeremiah 31 verse 10 says they're going to come from the north and from the ends of the earth. Ends of the earth. Could be South Africa. Could be South America. Could be uh, up in the Arctic. uh, Northern Canada. Northern Europe. Isaiah 19 verses 23 to 24 is really... Uh, a message of hope. It says Israel, Egypt, and Assyria are going to become leading nations in the coming kingdom of God. Egypt exists today. Assyria is modern Germany. And these are potentially leading nations even today. And Israel. This is not talking about the little group of people in the Middle East. It's talking about the Israelite peoples that have been scattered all over the earth will become leading nations in the coming kingdom of God. The forgotten key to Bible prophecy enables us to understand the history and the future of the Israelite nations. This is why it's important. It helps us understand the history, why history has worked out the way it has, and what is going to happen to the Israelite nations in the future. When you understand the identity of Israel, this key to Bible prophecy, you can understand Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy is going to make a lot more sense. And you can function as a watchman to the Israelite nations, as Ezekiel was commissioned to do. The forgotten key to Bible prophecy enables the church of God to fulfill its mission. And that mission is to warn the nations of Israel and the world about sobering events that are just about to happen in the years just ahead. But it also allows us to offer hope about an exciting future, about the coming kingdom of God and the role that various nations are going to play. This is why the forgotten key to Bible prophecy and the identity of Israel is so important today. If you have never looked into this subject and studied it for yourself, I would encourage you to begin that study today. 
It'll help you understand why the world is the way it is. It'll also help you make sense out of history. And it'll explain why the history of Western civilization has turned out the way it has. It'll also help you understand what the future holds for the nation in which you live. The subject that we have discussed in this presentation, the forgotten key to Bible prophecy and the identity of the Israelite nations is a subject that you cannot afford to ignore.